The Balance and Fall Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, a component of APTA, is bringing you this interview today. Hi, uh, this is Julie Schwerfeger, and I'm delighted to be interviewing the current Balance and Falls SIG Chair and the Associate Professor School of Health Sciences and Center for Human Machine Systems at Cleveland State University, Debbie Espy. Today, we're going to talk about her stability measure that she developed and, and validated, as well as some of her mentors and her early exposure uh, that led to her current research in balance falls and posture, and, uh, and then where she's going with her research based on all of the publications and things that she's done to date. Um, so with that, I will hand it over to you, Debbie. Tell us a little bit about your background. Thank you, Julie. I went to PT school in Virginia. At, at the time, it was Medical College of Virginia. It's now part of Virginia Commonwealth University. After I um, got my master's there, I moved to Chicago, and I worked at the University of Illinois in Chicago. Um, I worked in a lot of different areas, but um, not outpatient so much, except outpatient neuro, but certainly acute care, wound care, cardiac rehab, acute rehab, um, again, outpatient neuro, pretty much everything else. <laughs> um, I also worked as part of their assistive technology unit doing evaluations for um, assistive technologies around the Chicago area. It was a, a really cool program they had going at the time. But I worked with Mary Keene for a long time. And she, at the time, really instilled in everyone a strong sense of evidence-based practice and really um, really encouraged people and really facilitated using evidence-based and measurements to back up outcomes um, and treatments and decision-making. And that I think really stuck with me a great deal. So I, because University of Illinois medical system is part of the university system, I was able to go back and get my PhD while I continued working part-time for the hospital system um, and the assistive technology unit. So I got a PhD in um, human movement science and my focus, my dissertation was in stability, um, fall resistance, perturbation training, those general areas. Um, and who, who was your uh, research advisor? So Clive Pye was my research advisor. Um, and um, Tan Bibat, who is also part of our SIG, was, was um, a couple years ahead of me, but one of my lab mates as well. So I, I took that really strong um, foundation in stability, stability measurement, proactive balance and reactive balance training um, to my first job in Cleveland. It's been my only job as an academic. So my research since I've been in Cleveland has focused largely on balance training, postural control, motor learning, motor control. I've also become interested in um, a couple of things related to that using video gaming, adapting video gaming and active gaming for balance training and for motor, motor learning training um, because there are just so many really rich ways to modulate um, the intervention you're providing for somebody in a virtual environment like that. I've also really developed a, a love of using harnesses, all kinds of different harnesses in different ways um, to facilitate balance training, whether it's you know, just confidence or physical support. Through some of those, I've started working with the engineers, um, you know, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, 
and some of the biomedical engineering um, faculty. And that's sort of the center that you spoke of is um, it's a center that's made up of engineers, some health science faculty and some human performance faculty. So we attack problems um, that can use sort of a convergent disciplinary, interdisciplinary focus. Um, so anything that involves human interactions with machines to make life better for some group of people. That's great. And I, I wanted to ask, when you say human performance um, as a role, because I love the interprofessional uh, grouping that you just described of your lab, but like what roles or what backgrounds would make up human performance portion of that faculty? In, on our, in our university, the human performance faculty are um, kinesiologists. They do um, a lot in motor learning. Some are more affiliated with health sciences, some are more affiliated with the um, College of Education. And, and believe it or not, some are affiliated with the dance, the School of Dance. Oh, that's great. So it's a, it's a variety. <laughs> um, but it is, it's a, it's a nice mix of different people who work together on different projects. Um, so those and, are- and, my, Oh, no, that's okay. I, I, I jumped in when I should have let you keep going. Um, but so talk a little bit about your research. And of course, I'm, I'm really eager uh, to hear more about your stability measure. And, um, and I'll tell you what led to, I guess I'll give it away to the audience. Um, I was um, sitting in on a, uh, uh, a webinar and the speaker actually um, pulled up your measure and mm -hmm. talked about this wonderful measure that she learned about, uh, recalled you by name and just said that she just loves this measure, uses it all the time. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's, Debbie and I need to do a podcast with her. So, well, but, but talk, yeah. So, talk I, a little bit about that measure. I'm thrilled to have people use it. It started because in PT, we tend to use proactive balance training. We have people step, um, walk, catch things, step over things, stand on one foot, a lot of things that are self initiated and proactive. A lot of the evidence shows that reactive balance training um, may be more effective, especially for resisting falls. So, you know, we look at balance for your ability to resist a fall if you're perturbed, but also you need balance in order to be comfortable reaching down to something low to the ground, sit to stand, walking, walking in more challenging environments. So I think that somebody's balance and their own sense of their balance have a lot to do with how mobile they're willing to be and how much they're willing to do. So it's, it's both sides of that coin, but it's really hard to directly compare proactive and reactive balance training because reactive training tends to be so much more intense. It's just, um, however you define it, it's generally more intense because proactive, somebody can limit what they're willing to do. Um, if I ask somebody to do something really hard, they can simply not do it. If somebody's standing there and I pull the floor out from under them, they have to respond. Um, and it, in looking at that, it occurred to me that there is no way to measure how difficult is this balance task for this person. You can measure how fast is the floor moving or how much force did I use to nudge them. You can measure, if it's proactive, you can measure how far forward did they lean and how quickly, but that's measuring their performance. That's not measuring how hard the task was. So 
I did a lot of research and there really there is there was nobody measuring intensity for balance training. If you go to dose and exercise program, you need to have the frequency, the intensity, the type and the time. That intensity portion is easy for weights, it's easy for aerobics, it's easy for stretching, it's easy for most of the other modalities that we administer. But it's not motor learning is another example of where it's not easy to dose the intensity level. Um, but it isn't. And so I worked with students and a, and a colleague um, to just brainstorm ideas for how we might measure this. And we came up with something that's sort of a modified of the visual analog scale, or the Borg scale, we sort of incorporated both. Um, and I, in, in doing a lot of reading, decided that I believe that this balance intensity is a lot like pain, that it is um, individual to the person that we can't look at from the outside and say, this is this hard for this person or this hard for this, just like you can't look at somebody and say they're experiencing this much pain because everybody perceives pain differently. There are just so many systems that go into balance that, and you know, we've had students where we set up a bunch of different tasks and we'll have 20 students come through and some do really well at the slack line, but can't stand on a BOSU ball to save their life and vice versa. And just different people, their experiences, their bodies, they, they, different things are challenging to different people. Um, that, that's really great. And one of the things that uh, trying to go through and, and catch up on my CSM presentations, because there's some amazing presentations, uh, this really resonates with me because um, one of the speakers was Lou Nashner and he talks about a lot of times what we call reactive balance people kind of anticipate, unless you're really good at mixing it up. And so you might be scoring reactive balance, but really it's an, uh, APAs. Um, and I wonder if your scale would help get at that. I don't know. I, I completely agree though, because even with um, you know mechanical perturbations that you apply to somebody, whether it's gait perturbations or standing perturbations, treadmill perturbations, Certainly it, it's well established that once the person has done it once or twice or three times, they change their, their set ahead of time so that they can respond more easily or so that the perturbation doesn't push them outside of their limits to begin with. Um, and that's, that's well established. And I, I think that the reverse of that is a little bit true also. When we do pretty intense gaming with difficult surfaces and um, video games that are really requiring a lot of cognitive skill, a lot of um, stepping, reaching, um, all at the same time. If somebody reaches, that's proactive, but now if the floor moves in an unexpected way, there's a reactive component to that activity. So you, I think you get a little bit of both um, in what we tend to call a proactive activity. But I don't know that that our scale would be able to distinguish. But I do think what it would find is that as you do the task and, and what we have found when we apply this to reactive tasks, certainly you know that people find the thing to be easier as they go. I think that that is because they're able to have that set ahead of time where their, their center of mass is in a better location to resist the type of perturbation they're about to get. Um, their base of support is better set, all of those kinds of things. So, so going back, oh, sorry, I, I didn't mean to step on your words. Going back to what you said a little earlier about reactive balance being more challenging 
Um, and I, I and I think I also heard that it's uh, more modifiable through interventions, which is exciting. Mm -hmm. If you tested someone's APAs and and used your scale, and then I went in and did reactive balance, would you, would I anticipate that their perceived stability rating would be different if if reactive balance is indeed more challenging? Um, that I could see if I really got reactive versus if it was still an APA because they didn't do it so great and I still got the same score? I don't know. I know that, um, you know, the evidence seems to say that if you're training in reactive tasks, as you learn the task, you begin to develop not just this more favorable set ahead of time, but also if the task is slow enough or known enough, you can develop APAs to the reactive task, which is not what normally happens in a reactive task. And I think that that's part of the learning. And I think it's probably all adds into why the person feels less challenged. And, I, and, and they go along with each other, right? That if the person is more successful in recovering to that perturbation, they probably felt less challenged. Um, that's the logic of it. Um, but I, I don't know it would be interesting actually to look and see if you can differentiate some of those or track, um, you know, as people develop the APAs, what do their, what does their self-perception do? Because I, I, I would bet that people don't realize that they're hitting those APAs. Yes, which can be measured, right? Um, there, there's ways to measure that, of course, in the lab. It's harder right. in the clinic, right. um, but really interesting. And uh, and and I, I just love this conversation of, uh, I never I never thought there were APAs you develop in reactive balance training. I love that. Um, so uh, so this might be a nice time to um, pause for a second because um, you've given us a lot to chew on. And just go through some of the basics, right, for people listening in. Um, I think a lot of the balance terms get used generally, and a lot of times that that means they get used incorrectly, right? So the specificity of them gets lost. And you are a balance expert, um, and I, I just love to use some of this time to talk about differentiating some of those commonly used balance terms. Sure. So I... Um... I have my advisor actually once. Um, so the traditional keeping your center of mass over your base of support. Um, you know, he or somebody during my dissertation defense said, you know what, a tree stump, you know, can keep its center of mass over its base of support, but it's not very useful. Um, so when most people say balance, they mean keeping your center of mass within your base of support. But even just normal walking, we don't do that. We are constantly moving our center of mass and then rearranging our base of support to fit our new center of mass location. Um, and so I tend to talk more about stability and I use a pretty standard, um, more, maybe more engineering based definition. So it's the ability of the system to return to its previous state. So if, I'm walking along and somebody pushes me or slips me or, or pulls the floor out from under me, my ability to go back to walking in that nice controlled normal way um, is stability. Or the converse, if I can't, you know, if I fall or take, you know, eight stumble steps or 
um, can't get back to that normal walking, that's instability. So it's, it's the ability of that system to come back to its, its baseline, um, which I think is a lot more useful when we're looking at human movement and the things that people need to do every day. Um, it's a, another piece that we think a lot about in our lab is, and, and you would know, you're very familiar with this in working with, with stroke and stroke research, but people who are really active are putting themselves in harm's way more. So they're maybe more likely to fall, but they're also more active and they're less sedentary and therefore they're challenging themselves and arguably maintaining their balance and all the subsystems involved in, in balance control healthier. People rarely fall off their sofas. So if somebody spends all day sitting on a sofa, they're not as likely to fall until they have to move. Well, some of my stroke population can <laughs> fall out of a chair at rest. Um, well, and, and, but, but yes, other, but in general, yes, I completely Generally, agree. So um, there is definitely a sweet spot in the active enough to not be sedentary and maintain all the systems that you need um, and, and not so active that you're, that you're putting yourself in too much risk, which, you know, is a different point for every person, right? Um, yes, yes. So, so balance, if I heard you correctly, is not such a helpful term. It's funny because it's one that we make sure to, to teach in PT school and, and we all know it, but. And I think it's fine to say, you know, the realm of balance, as long as people understand that, that includes an awful lot of different things and that there are more specific concepts that you need to think about when you're going to start doing assessments and intervention design. Very nice. And then are there any other uh, terms that you think it misused or, or would be um, worth? I think people maybe don't think, I, actually I take that back. People are thinking more about proactive versus reactive. Um, I think that once you do balance training, you know, in a clinic, in a clinical setting often enough or long enough, they become a little bit more intuitive. I know that with my students, we really have to, to sit and have them, you know, work through things, you know, physically or mentally, you know, what's reactive, you know, if I throw a ball at you, you're responding, but you still have all those postural adjustments ahead of time. You have, you know, time to, to call up a motor program, the whole nine yards. It's, it's a proactive activity. It's not reactive. Um, yeah. I love that. Cause I've had, I've had students and even, you know, licensed clinicians where they just start to say, if there's activity in it, it's reactive. Like, okay, you had to respond to where, where I threw the ball and you didn't know ahead of time, but you saw it before you had to respond to it. And therefore it's still and you have anticipatory. Not respond. Yes. Yes. Beautifully stated. Yeah. So, so with that, um, I want to go back to, to take another flight, if you will, out of uh, the stability measure, because I think as you define those terms, it really added to just what an important and helpful tool this is for clinicians. Um, with that, um, how did you go about validating this? And, and then what are your next steps using it um, or your next steps in your research? So I will say that we have, um, since the paper that, that you asked me about, we've modified um, after having just a lot of different people look at the, the 10 point scale and we've changed it to a seven point scale. Um, and, we, and we have found that that is easier for people to use. 
we unfortunately were in the middle of a really big um, balance training study with individuals with stroke. And we've been exactly a year now um, that data collection has been on hold. So we've been using the new seven point scale um, for that study. And part of the point of that study was to really look at the use of the scale in different types of balance training in this population um, who, you know, sometimes have aphasia, sometimes have difficulty with dual tasking, that sort of thing. Um, so that study that was supposed to have been finished by now is just restarting this week. Um, Another COVID casualty, this delay. Um, I, I do love, so, you know, stroke is close to my heart and uh, you mentioned including people with aphasia. So kudos to you. I think that's so important. And, and I still see studies where aphasia is something that keeps people out of them. Um, were there any adaptations you needed to do to the scale to make it aphasia friendly? No, because we designed it intentionally up front in that it's color coded, it has numbers and it has words. And what, and, and this I will be perfectly honest about, I've, I've tried to read, you know, psychometric studies and properties, and I have not figured out how to, I don't know, validate isn't the right word, but assess the use, you know, people, what we notice is that people use one of those modalities at a time. So the folks with aphasia um, tend to look at the colors or they look at the color and they point, um, you know, to that square. The students by and large tend to use the words. So instead of giving you a number, they'll come back with, you know, I feel blah, blah, blah. And they'll just quote you that, you know, definition. Um, and other people use the numbers. So I think because it had different modalities to access it, we haven't really had an issue with people with, with aphasia. Now I will say people with severe receptive aphasia, there've been a few people who we, we are not sure they actually understood the concept of it up front. But expressive aphasia has not been an issue as far as we can tell. <laughs> right, okay. No, that's that's wonderful. And then are there any exclusion criteria or I guess I should just say, what, what are your inclusion exclusion criteria for the populations you're testing out this, this measure? So for the strokes, um, the stroke-based study that we're doing right now, it's really just anybody, it's, it's chronic, so anybody more than six months past their stroke who um, self-identifies as having balance difficulties or feels like they're limiting their activities because of a fear of falling um, or a, because of poor balance. They, I mean, the usual restrictions, you know, orthopedic or, or cardiovascular issues that make the type of exercise unsafe, um, those types of things. But, um, but nothing on the cognitive realm, including even uh, the, the, the degree of aphasia. Um, so I think we sort of self-limit there because if somebody's receptive aphasia is severe enough that they can't understand our study, then they also can't understand our consent. And so we're not um, we're just not equipped to, to go that step beyond. Wonderful. Um, that, I mean, that makes sense. And so um, your data collection will start. I'm, I'm hearing different predictions of fall and to winter, but um, it's looking like there will be a light at the end of the tunnel. We, we are beginning our data collection again um, tomorrow. 
Congratulations. That's <laughs> good news. And um, what, what's your end that you still need? And, and, and where would people go if they want to participate? I think they will. We had quite a few people. So with the first call out for people who are interested in coming in, um, and I think most of the people were not allowed to, we're not asking about the vaccination, but most of the volunteered that they are vaccinated. Um, it's a really stringent, I'm on the university committee for um, you know, COVID human subjects research approvals. And it's um, more stringent than any of the clinical settings around. <laughs> um, but we, we're looking for about 12 more folks and we've got 10 um, to come in and be screened in the next couple of days. So, oh, good. Oh, so wonderful. I think, we'll hit, I think we'll hit that end. And is it a one-time visit or is it? No, we have, um, we have two evaluation visits up front, one at the end and it's 10 intervention sessions. Ah, okay. But a 10 out of 12 already at least hopefully screened. So that's a good, good step. So with that, um, it, it looks like in the next year, we might see a new publication. Um, I love that it'll be a validation on stroke. Um, but the next step is, um, what, what else do you have in your pipeline? Or what's the next study that you want to start once you finish this one? Um, so the, as far as the scale, we've also used it with um, reactive. So we've done reactive testing before and after our, our interventions. So we're looking at both. Um, I would... I would love to find kinematics that um, identify balance difficulty and not just balance performance, because I think that how far somebody sways or how quickly they step or any of those things has more to do with their balance ability or their performance of the balance task than it does with how difficult the task was in the first place unless they're really strict instructions about stand there and do not sway, do not move. Um, so I would, I would love to be able to find a way. And I've talked with some of the engineers about some little bit higher level modeling that's you know, beyond my <laughs> immediate ability um, and things to look at. Because the, the world of, of wearable sensors makes some of those measures, if you can create the mathematical model to go with the kinematics, the measures are easy. Hmm. So that's one and, area. I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, that's okay. So um, I'm just chewing on the idea of wearables, which is uh, such a hot topic. Um, sure. and, it, and it definitely opens up the ability to assess in more real environments too, right? If it's not a million dollar sensor that you're afraid to let leave your clinic. Yes. Um, <laughs> But the other thing, I, I was in a recent conversation with um, uh, the, the Winstein, so the, uh, the, the University of Southern California Motor Behavior and Neurorehabilitation Lab, and they were talking about age reflex and, 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 uh, and, and wearables, but specific to the wearables um, and what the data is that they collect, how it's converted, um, and what it's really telling you versus what somebody has decided to say it means, exactly. Um, which kind of blew my mind. I was like, that's right. a whole nother tier I had never even considered. I just believed it. I was very naive in my belief of these sensors. So um, 
when you talk about wearables and, and one of them is the APDM, right? Which is a very expensive, but um, has some has some pedigree with Faye Horeg being part of the, the development of that company. Um, even that sensor, right? You wear like you can buy the whole suite of them if you're sure, really sure. wealthy, and you put them on, you know, ankles and waist and each wrist, and I think there's one at the chest. And it that's a lot to get a person to wear, right? So it starts to become like, well, it's not, right. they're not going right. to be just running around and putting this on. So have you talked at all about, or are you looking at, like? What are the best options out there to try to have something? So at this point, I think that um, I'm not convinced that any of the commercial systems at this point have the variables that I'm necessarily looking for. I think they, they are on their way. They have been. They are getting to... Um, you know, somebody's balance, somebody's balance skills, somebody's balance capability or ability, um, and also probably their fall risk. But if I have somebody using those throughout the day, um, I don't know that it's telling me, is this person challenging themselves or are they not? How difficult is balance? How much of an issue is balance in their life? We can just say compared to all the other people, their age and their gender with their condition, their ability falls here on a bell curve. Um, same with doing therapy. You know, we can look at somebody and we can, you know, they're sweating, they look fearful, you know, they're screaming, whatever measure you want to use for they're working too hard or they look bored, maybe they're not working hard enough. But we don't have anything more fine-tuned than that to say, I need to make this task harder or they're not getting their money's worth. I need Got to make it. it easier and we're just working in fear and not actually training. Yeah. Um, and interesting. And I, I think those are different measures than the measures the systems that are commercialized currently correct. Yeah. I love that. And and so and the the focus that you have to to try to create something in that gap is kinematics. Right. Um, but the other piece that I would ask you about would be um, what's going on cortically or in the nervous system. Have you thought at all about looking in that realm? I mean, it, talk about wearable sensors. Like, we just need you to wear this uh, cortical bat. No, I, I understand that. But at least in um, in being able to measure it in, in clinic. Um, and there yeah. are some non-invasive there are, and, and it's really, really intriguing. And my brain is not big enough to go both directions at the same time. <laughs> I know there are definitely people whose brains are that big. Um, well, a lot of people would say that makes you a good scientist is that you're, you're circumscribing your study. Uh, you're not trying to do too much at one time. Yeah, I don't know about that, but I, but I, I mean, they're intriguing. And I, you know, in reading those, those studies and talking to people who do those kinds of studies, um, but I have not stopped to figure out how you would put the two together. I guess, because I haven't really figured out this side of things yet. You need to add a, a neuroscientist to your lab, that stuff. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that sounds like a really worthwhile um, next step. And I'm so excited about the, the underway and now recruiting live participants again, uh, validation and stroke. What other populations have you done validation on or are you looking to validate on um, 
So the 10 point scale, we did do a study in a group of older adults, um, 50 and older, who some, it was a range of, I don't feel balance challenged through, I do kind of worry about my balance, but nobody with a history of falls. Um, and I, I, I have not published that one, mostly because we then shortly thereafter switched to the seven point scale. Um, and so I haven't gone back to, to publish the results on the 10 point scale. Right, one of the problems with measures as you refine it, then you're like, oh man, yeah. now all of that exactly. work. Exactly. Um, and then a lot of the initial work was with, um, you know, college students, so. Got it. So unhealthy, uh, younger, younger population. Exactly. So I have not, there are no other um, more circumscribed groups of people that I've worked with yet. I have I, anybody who would like to use it, um, especially the newer version. Um, if anybody who emails, I send it um, and they're welcome. So I've had people um, in Parkinson's clinics use it. Um, had people in more general fall and, and older adult clinics use it, um, some dementia, you know, but. Yeah, no, that's great. And in fact, it was, is it Laura Tinney Louder, I think is her name, that does NeuroSpark uh, Educational. I think she attended your presentation, um, I think that you did at CSM a few years ago okay. as, uh, as part of the Balance and Falls SIG mm -hmm. um, you know, presentation product. Um, and she loved it and she must have approached you after and you emailed it to her because that's I, as you're saying that it's really sparked my memory to say like that's what she was talking about she's like yeah and I emailed her and she's like yeah, yeah you yeah. can use it yeah and I just love this measure so oh, that's great well, good. yeah so I'm, I'm thrilled that people are using it because really I, I firmly believe that that in the practice of PT you should be really dosing your interventions appropriately we shouldn't be underworking people. We shouldn't be overworking people. We should have intentional reasons for choosing the doses, the activities, the interventions that we choose. Um, and, and if you can't measure it in some meaningful way, then you're not really choosing, you're just throwing things at somebody and you know, probably right some of the time, but not all of the time. Well said, well said. And when you talk about someone's balance, um, we do have some measures, right? And we even have our core set from the Neuro Academy, um, but they don't really get at the stability. Um, they don't, so and, it's, none them, and none of them purport to measure the intensity of the intervention. They, they are very, very clear about what they're measuring. And it's, you know, it's fall risk, or it's a certain type of balance ability, or it's the underlying, pardon me, underlying physiology that goes into balance um, the health of those systems. I mean, they're very, very clear about what they are measuring. It's just that um, none of them are really measuring the intensity of what you're, what you're doing. And it's hard to say, you know, there, there are so many studies that say high intensity, this produces these kinds of better results or, you know, lower intensity, this, or, you know, for stretching this dosage, this often for this amount of time, um, produces better results, but we can't say that about balance activity. Yeah, I love that. In fact, I think it was just uh, in the last couple of days, again, catching up on my CSM presentations and uh, the presentation that Tanvi Bott actually was presenting, she, she talked about her next steps in her research 
um, you know, looking at, we need to make dose response curves. And if, if you can train somebody and be less aggressive and put them through less discomfort and they get the same effect, right? Then that's what you wanna do. But right now, um, what you're saying is we have no idea what the intensity is that they're experiencing and that's patient specific. Exactly. Um, so you're, you've given us a, a first step, a very important first step to, to now. Like pain, there are a lot of things that confound that. There are people that overreport, people that underreport. Um, you know, there, there are fewer outside gains than, than pain, perhaps. But, but there's definitely a whole, you know, psychology behind um, the scale. But. Right. And, and so, I, it, boy, that brings up another recent presentation. And, and it was Catherine Lang talking about, you know, we know that you'll have this this curve, right? And there's the people that underreport, the people that overreport, and the people that are reporting really accurately. Right. But you don't know who you've got in front of you. Exactly. Um, so it doesn't fix all problems. But if someone's an underreporter, is there any evidence that talks about, like, at least they'll consistently underreport and to maybe the know. same ish? I don't degree? know. If have that um, research before you have the measure for them to over and under report on. Yeah, because if you're looking at it for an individual to look for change, it starts to become less important that they underreported or overreported because yeah. assuming assuming <laughs> they're they're an overreporter of 10% or 30% or whatever they are, if they're if they're fairly consistent, then a change is still a change. Exactly. And it and it doesn't matter that they are an overreporter. Right. So here's hoping it's that, but um, that's even more good studies that we can try to, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> in the future, after you get the kinematics and we get a neuroscience <laughs> to help you with the neuro sure, substrates sure. and the, we'll have it all locked down. <laughs> Excellent. Well, so Debbie, I, I'm quickly running out of time. Um, I've, I could just talk to you all night about balance and stability in your measure. Um, but as we wrap up, are there any uh, things that we didn't cover that you wanted to talk about before we wrap up? Um, and if know. there's any things with your lab that you'd want people to be aware of, that that's also a good thing. I think you're you quite organized. Um, I, I would again say that if um, if anyone wants a copy of the measure, I'm, I'm happy to send it. Um, and uh, or or ideas, suggestions you know, their own experiences, something they're using that's similar that, you know, I, I don't believe there's money to be made on this. So I'm not looking to. Uh... <laughs> Very good. And so if assuming people are going to find this podcast by going to ANPT, they can find uh, a way to get a hold of you right there as they're playing the podcast. Um, and if there's anything else that you, you wanted to add about other studies going on, in your lab or in the, the partner labs by you related to balance, um, now would be the time and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. No, we're um, getting our feedback under us with this with this study that was on hold for so long. And then I think once that's finished, we can uh, move forward with, with the next steps. It's uh, definitely thrown things into disarray. Yes, and th thank goodness you guys are able to, uh, with your strict adherence uh, to being safe here. You're getting people back in that lab to do yeah. this important research. Well, thank you so much for your time and thank you for this measure. Um, I'll be one of the people reaching out to you for, 
its use. And um, I just, I wish you good success with recruiting and completing your studies and your future research. It's very important. And I, I really look forward to reading it. Thank you for your time, Julie. Thanks. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to this interview brought to you by the Balance and Fall Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. For more information on this special interest group or the Academy, visit www.neuropt.org.